homogeneous in the type. So everyone knows what a buzzword is, right? Throw me out a buzzword. Niche. Niche. Niche, excellent. Next. Spearhead. Spearhead, great. Another one. Keep them coming. What else? Best practice insights. Excellent. So within the business world, for 2015, a few major publications like Harvard Business Review and Business Insider have put out their top 10 business insights for 2015. What are the buzzwords that the key ones that we have to know? We've chosen 10. We're going to review them quickly. Innovation. Crisis management. Lean in. I think I'm in the right room for that. Conflict resolution. Cultivating leaders. Horizontal alignment, customer service, solution driven, creative communication, and long term strategic vision. And we're going to do is we're going to walk through each of those examples. They're all business terms. We'll give a brief introduction to what they are and what they mean. And I'll just going to highlight how each of them have their origins in the Torah. Matan Torah happened 3,000 years ago, but the Torah is ultimately the source of everything. And we're going to highlight that tonight through Prism of Wisdom. So when Daniel and I were both in business school, I would bring home my homework for a number of years. He brought his homework home for a number of years. And we would do is read these Harvard business case studies, often on whether it was on a case study on Google or on Zappos, and whether it was customer service focused or leadership focused, and kind of going through the different functions of business and reading through these Harvard business case studies. And we would sit and be like, oh my God, that's in the pressure this week. So crazy. And we would take notes on all of our case studies and see how there's actually a total synthesis and synergy between the two worlds. And it's really incredible, as I mentioned before, how you can glean one from the next. Um, and I would argue that much of business is rooted, and business theory you know, is rooted in the Torah. And I would also argue that Judaism has a lot to learn from the business world. So, um, for, example, and for example, marketing, right? So we all know that we are products of marketing, right? So the stuff we buy, the stuff we consume, media, all that kind of stuff. We are, we are habits, creatures of habit. And we're drawn by whatever the marketers, as they're doing a good job, they're, they're bringing us into their product mix, their services, etc. Um, if Judaism did a better job marketing, marketing their, their product of Judaism, we would all be in a different place. I think there's a certain amount that, that, we, that business is essentially has the basis and the foundation of Torah on one hand. On the other hand, I would also argue that there is what Judaism can take from our observance, from our connection to each other, our connection to God, and understand that through some of the theories that are also within the business world. So we're going to go through, journey through these, uh, these 10, so... Top 10, not Lebanon style, but... <laughs> uh, let's begin with innovation. Can somebody give me an example of something innovative? Innovation through the prism and the lens of business. What's a new business innovation that we all benefit from? And I'm thinking of one that Jackie now uses that I'm being told about. Business innovation. examples, both of innovation and disruptive technology, where they came about and said, you know what, let's take Manhattan as an example. Everybody uses either mass transit, subway system, where we just came from, which is why we're so hot, because it was so delayed and uh, stuffy, or they use yellow cabs. And there's all the many reasons why yellow cabs are bad. They're expensive, they're delayed, they're whatever. What about we schedule something on demand that's at your fingertips that might charge a premium for, but it works. Welcome to Uber. And that Uber is a thing of yesterday because what's come along since? Yeah. Beer. Who knows about beer? So, 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 
Five dollar, amazing. Think of think of your time in Israel and the shirut system. It's jumping in a shared car with other people for five dollars. It's excellent. It goes between one sixteen and fourteenth. I don't work for them, but I'm it's like yeah, exactly. Sorry. It's like super, super air conditioned black. It's like a black It's black like super tone, but it's a little different. Yeah. Exactly. Anyway, you'll check it out. Jack will send you a code. You get a discount. Yeah. Or either me or Um But there are two wonderful, perfect examples of innovation. We want to show everyone an example here from the Sifra, which is the rabbinic teaching on the parasha um, that shows us a beautiful example of innovation through the lens of Yiddishkeit and Judaism. Okay, so this is what's called the Shloshifri Midot Shehaferani Dreshet Bahem, which in English means the 13 qualities by which the Torah is learned. Um, it's a form of homiletical exegesis, and it's a way in which you're able to learn and derive understanding both from Torah, Torah sources, and ultimately this system was used in order to develop halacha. Why do you need innovation in halacha? Because times change, cultures change. Society changes, you have political changes, you have all this whole landscape with all these different facets that are constantly changing, constantly evolving, and how does halacha work with that? How does halacha stay in tune with what is going on culturally, what is going on sociologically, and still maintain the integrity and the structure of halacha in its entirety, and then, but also be able to, um, to adapt to, to, uh, to current needs? Think of an example. Just think of the one day a week that we all stop and rest. Think of Shabbat. Think of how many different junctures there are where technology confines and runs together with Shabbat. Think of a Shabbat elevator. How can we have Shabbat elevators? Were they in existence when the Torah was given 3,000 years ago? No, technology didn't exist. But through understanding and through this process, we've been able to apply halacha, Jewish law, and adapted to a new advancements like technology that exists through a Shabbat elevator. Right, and we'll read this, the source inside quickly, but these 13 attributes, or these 13 rules, serve as the bedrock of how the halakhic system developed. So, the same way, and just as an example, any Spartan in the house? Any, yes, okay, awesome. So any right, wannabes? Right, we're all wannabes, we all wanna, we all wish we could have rice on that, so we're, right, so what was that? That was, that was what's called, um, it was, change that was instituted at the time because there was no other food available for that particular community at that point in history. So the rabbis mandated that at that point in history you could eat X, Y, and Z. It wasn't chametz gummer. It wasn't something that was defined as absolute chametz. And because of, because of the need, then there were certain changes were made. So here you have two Jews, one's Ashkenaz, one's far, and you have one that cannot have rice and one that absolutely can have rice. How do you have that? This is about the halakhic development of the system, and yet maintaining the integrity and the bedrock of what halakha is meant to be and what it stands for. So Rabbi Shmuel says, this is source number one, innovation. Through 13 rules is the Torah elucidated, and it goes through all 13. We'll just read a few of them. If anybody's ever heard of the term kalvachomer, kalvachomer is, is a term that's very often used in the Gemara and Talmudic language. Um, it's like a fortiori. So it's a conclusion inferred from a lenient law to a strict law. So if I can't lift 50 pounds, there's no way I can lift 100 pounds. That's a kalvachomer. So that's a form of, um, of exegesis that's used in terms of understanding halakha and understanding how to adapt that halakha to current, to current circumstances. That's one example. The next one is called the Gezerat Shava. Um, it's a tradition that similar words in different contexts are meant to clarify one another. So you might have two totally different scenarios. The same word is used in both, and you can derive an anchor understanding of that meaning because of the use in both of those different places. So this is an innovative, adaptive model that was instituted literally 3,500 years ago 
that is still used now. It is still part of how we understand halakha. It's part of how we understand Torah. Um, just as an example, this week's Torah portion is Parsha Kukad. This is the famous or infamous Parsha where Moses hits the rock and is therefore not allowed to enter into the land of Israel. And many of the commentators question, that seems like a little bit of a harsh response. He's done so much. He's led the people. They've been so rebellious. All he did was hit instead of talk to. There are a number of questions that come up about it. But um, using this, Gezerah uh, Chava, it, it talks about the word Sela, which is the rock that he actually hit. And Rashi, along with some other commentators, say, well, where else is Sela used? Where else do we see rock? Where else do we see interaction of hitting or talking or striking? Where else do we see rocks throughout Torah? And then you can derive an understanding and a deeper meaning for why maybe this was an appropriate response to Moshe based on the fact that this word rock was used in other areas of Torah. So that's an example of Gezerah of Chava. Um, we're not going to go through all of them, but just to understand that this, um, this system and the structure and the infrastructure for innovation was built into the system of halakha and the system of learning Torah. Awesome. Well done. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Crash the center. Everyone knows that it's a hot buzzword and a hot topic. Take it from the angle of the entertainment world. Think of how many people make the profession of being PR agents to actors and famous people who make uh, mistakes, caught drunk driving, they go doing something, and all of a sudden they have to bring their team of crisis management to help make sure they don't lose their reputations. Think of CEOs that do bad things, negative things. Think of situations that happened just three weeks ago. The CEO of American Express, phenomenally brilliant guy, unfortunately passed away. He came off an airplane, he's a brilliant person from what I read, and at 50 years old, with a family, had a heart attack, he was the president, global president of American Express. All of a sudden, within the flick of a second, the whole company had to find a new leader, had to sort of rally around who's going to be in charge, what we're going to do, how do we honor him, how do we move forward, bring the team together and go forward as a multi-global amazing company. Crisis management is massive, it's huge. Have a look at this source. Brilliantly, you see how one of the main leaders of the Jewish people, at least in the parashio, the Torah portions that we're reading now, has a moment of absolute epiphany and exemplifies crisis management 101. What's the back set to this story? So the two sons of Aaron and Cohen um, ultimately try and come close and we can debate with different Torah commentators argue what they were trying to do. They tried to bring their own korban, their own sacrifice into the temple and ultimately they weren't allowed to at that time. Maybe they were drunk. Maybe it wasn't required. What happens to them? Anybody know? They, they die. They die in infamous death on the spot there and then. And what happens to Aaron? How does he respond? There's no outrage, there's no complaining, there's no revolt, there's no revolution, there's just Vayidam Aaron, and he was silent. So what's interesting is that there are different styles that are used for different types of crises. If the CEO of Sony, when that whole hacking situation went down, did a little Vayidam Aaron, she would have been a lot better off than how things went down with Sony. Um, so there are different types of styles and different types of tactics that are used, and this is if you read any book of crisis management, there are times when you have to be very reactive, sometimes you have to be very proactive, sometimes you have to remain quiet and wait, and not necessarily respond instinctively and impulsively, um, because, again, in a situation of crisis, depending on what the circumstances are, you need to make sure that you're protecting yourself, those around you, the employees, the brand, all of this, all of this kind of stuff. So this is just one example where we see a tremendous leader who is very vocal 
and who had a very strong presence, was the spiritual leader of the Jewish people at the time. Um, and his response was Vayidol Maharun. He understood that whatever took place was necessary. He may not understand it, and he wasn't going to debate it, to go into debate it at that time. It doesn't mean that he didn't question. It doesn't. It doesn't mean he didn't have his own dialogue with God. It's right, exactly. It doesn't mean he didn't struggle, but outward facing Vayidol Maharun, that he was able to be silent. And that, number one, takes incredible strength to understand the nuances and the difference of when do you speak up, when are you quiet. We all face this at work, right? You know, if somebody took credit for something you did, not quite crisis management, but, you know, microcosm of crisis management. Someone took credit for something you do, you did. Do you speak up? Do you not speak up? Do you tell your boss? Do you throw your colleague under the bus? Or as, as this is sound familiar, has anyone been through this before? I may have. Right, so somebody, right, so, and you're like, what are, you, what are you supposed to do? And there are times when you're supposed to be silent and times when you're meant to be very vocal. Um, so we're just highlighting this as one example of a leader, a tremendous leader in Torah, and his particular style as a reaction to this particular circumstance. Conflict resolution. Oh, lean in. Cheryl Sandberg. Oh, Cheryl Sandberg. So I, um, we all know that she's obviously had a very um, unfortunate, uh, a very unfortunate past, uh, I guess, six weeks, six weeks ago. Um, so I was very fortunate to have an opportunity to spend um, a bit of time with her. And when I, just when I was graduating at NYU, and, and um, we had uh, an opportunity to spend some time together. She's, she's as awesome as she is. So there's no, it's not an act, it's not pretending, she's just, she's just awesome. So we all know Lean In, I mean, how many of you guys are part of Lean In, how many girls, ladies, women, are part of Lean In groups? So that's right. So leanin.org is Cheryl's um, nonprofit organization. Does anybody read the book? Okay, fine. Does everybody know is what leanin is? Yeah. Okay, Cheryl Sammer, Chief Operating Officer of Facebook. Have we heard of her? Yeah. Yes. Okay, awesome. Have we heard of Facebook? <laughs> right. It's this small little company. Um, so um, Cheryl Sammer wrote this book called Lean In, and it's basically about empowering women to, to lean into the conversation, to take their place at the table, not be at the conference table, like the, the big table that's very well dominated at times. So to take their seat at that table and to be part of the conversation, don't be afraid to step up. Um, you know, every organization needs a token Jane, and she goes through all of these um, very awesome stories um, in her experience. One, one in particular, she said that she was at um, she was at a private equity firm. I guess I don't know, was raising it was pre it was pre IPO um, for uh, for Facebook, and she was in the office. She was the only female there. And the CEO of the private equity fund, um, she was with him, and she said, "You know, where's the where's the bat? Where's the restroom?" And he was like, "Ladies, ladies' room." Like that. She's like, "Yeah, ladies' room." And he had never he, he had never had to walk a woman to a ladies' room on his floor, which means that which means that there was no there were no women on his floor ever. So this was the, one of the first females, or the first female he ever had sitting in his office. So she goes through and kind of tells these stories. Um, and it's amazing and fascinating because we look at her as the modern day hero, right? So she's the voice of women and she's pushing to have women on boards and women and pushing to have women serve in higher positions and, and flexibility and all these kinds of things. She's an incredible advocate for women. And yet, if you go back to our own history, we can name dozens of women who were serving in these kinds of roles. So we're just going to take one as an example, Esther from the story of her, okay? So I took, or we both took two separate examples to highlight her growth, okay? Because Esther leaned in. Ready? Um, look at the top over. It says Esther's two-step. Yeah. She transitioned from her initial Esther 
Esther 1 to Esther 2. We'll see that beautifully in chapter right. 2 to chapter 4. Excellent. So what happened? Esther did not reveal her nationality or her lineage, for Mordecai had ordered her not to reveal it. So what's happening here? She is now in the palace. Mordecai has sent her in to be part of this harem of women who will ultimately come before Ahasuerus. She will be chosen to be the lucky bride of Ahasuerus. Miss Universe, <laughs> right, Miss Persia, um, and she's going to be selected. And Mordecai, through one of the servants of the of the palace, communicates with uh, back and forth with Esther. And what does Mordecai say to her? Do not tell anyone who you are. You can't let anyone know. It would be a danger and it would spoil our whole plot. So what does she do? She obeys, right? Esther did not reveal her nationality or her lineage from Mordecai had ordered her not to reveal it. What happens two chapters later? And Mordecai ordered, ordered to reply to Esther. So as he says, again, it's through this intermediary. He says, do not imagine to yourself that you will escape in the king's house from among all the Jews. He says, Esther, it's time to act now. She's like, I can't. I can't be called to the palace if, if I haven't been summoned by King Ahasuerus. She's not familiar. This is the story of the story of her. So she's like, I can't go to the king if I haven't been summoned. So I'm going to place a hearty more reply, but I don't have a choice. My hands are tied. I can't do anything. So what happens? And he continues in verse number 14. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and rescue will arise from the Jews from elsewhere, and you and your father's household will perish. And who knows whether at a time like this you will attain the kingdom. So he's wow. taking out a little bit of a motivational speech, right? So it's a motivational speaker. So what does she do? Talk about Yeah. Then verse number 15. Then Esther ordered, ordered to reply to Mordecai. And it's interesting because in the Hebrew it says, that Tamar Esther the Hashiva Mordecai. So it's like, you tell Mordecai what to do. So all of a sudden we see this, this change in her tone. What does she say? And she, if you actually look at the words in Hebrew, it's in zevoid form. So in Hebrew you have past tense, present tense, future tense. Verbs get conjugated into different forms. And you have what's called command tense. This is written in command tense. Go assemble all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast on my behalf. Neither eat nor drink for three days, day and night. Also, I and my maidens will fast in like manner. Then I will go to the king contrary to the law, and if I perish, I perish. So now we have strength. Now we have charisma. Now we have leadership. And what's the last verse, number 17? So Mordecai passed and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. So if you compare verse number 17 to verse number 10 from chapter 2, we see total metamorphosis, a total transformation. It's like it's not even the same person. So this is an example of somebody who saw the opportunity. She needed a little bit of motivation. There's no question Mordecai played a key mentorship role in that respect. She needed a little bit of that inspiration. And what did she do? She took on the job. And she didn't just take it on. She got a front seat at the table. And she sat and she was vocal. And from this point on, she masterminds the whole part of the story. Everything about the parties and when to tell Ahasuerus, when to bring Hamani. Everything was a, was a complete mastermind and, and a, puppet, like a puppeteer job on her behalf. Um, so this is, again, another example of, you know, a story that's 2,800 years old with a, a woman that is leaning in. So, um, I think also an example, yeah. just as you see it here, not just leaning in, not just empowerment of her and development of her ability to take a real seat. She also was able to take the mentorship and not be afraid to direct the person that was mentoring her. But sometimes in a mentorship relationship, in the business world, in the professional world, you sort of don't know when to... Be quiet, when to tell your mentor you're changing, you're developing, you're developing a skill set that they're trying to push you towards. And she went from chapter two saying, uh, order not to reveal that she's quiet. And in the last chapter, uh, sentence 16, she's like, and she orders him, she says, go and do it. Right. And she, she completely flips and she takes charge over him, it's pretty powerful. And there's actually, um, to Daniel's point, there's actually one other thing. In verse number 16, 
Again, going back to leadership, so this is more about planning it and women in business, but if you go to different leadership styles, what does she say? She says, you fast, and I'm also going to fast, right? So it's not, it's not leading from the glass, from the ivory tower. It's leading by, by imitation and by modeling. So she wasn't going to do things that people weren't going to do. So through behavioral modeling that she was actually able to lead. And we know that there are different kinds of leaders. So even the whole idea of, um, of open seating, right? How many... Um, in terms of you have open seating in your company, right? So it's people are moving to that. Why? Because it creates equality, creates homogeneous, you know, a homogeneous kind of environment um, where people can relate to one another. So she, her, her form of leadership wasn't like I am literally in the palace and you guys are out here. It's you're going to fast and I'm going to fast also. So there's a certain amount of camaraderie that she's building through her leadership style as well. But no one likes open seating. No one likes open seating. It's hard. It's kind of cool. Questions? Comments? So another key piece um, is conflict resolution. Whether we like it or not, and we can sort of pretend that conflicts don't arise, they arise every day. Sometimes they're big, sometimes they're small, sometimes they're between colleagues, sometimes they're between family members. Conflicts happen in every realm of life that we exist. Business world has tremendous ways of dealing with conflicts. There's mediation, there's the legal route, there's dealing with your superior and your subordinates and colleagues that ultimately are on the same team as you, you have the same paycheck from the same company, but he or she hates your guts and then after you get cut your throat and they want to take all the credit for the work you do, and how can you manage that? How does your supervisor navigate those channels? Where is this source from? Many examples throughout all of Tanakh, all of Sifri Tanakh, and this is just one from Malachim. Anyone studied Kings before? So once you finish the five books of Moses, you have to get through all of Tanakh. Tremendous amazing. part. Um, stuff in there. And truth be told, that we spend, I wouldn't say too much time, but we spend a tremendous focus on the five books of Moses. And there's a lot to be gleaned, a lot to be learned, and they are the ultimate five. But how, I don't know how many other books there are in Tanakh. You're in a lot. 24. 24 24. 24 books of Tanakh. Three through tremendous stories, tremendous lessons. Let's have a look at one from Malachi. Okay, so we'll just, this is actually one of the prime examples and the um, interesting example. very fascinating example. Um, an interesting example that actually put Shlomo, King Solomon, who was King David's son, who was actually the one who um, facilitated the building of the first temple. Um, this actually put him on the map to make him what was known as the wisest of all men. So AKA an important character in our communal history. He built the first temple. Yeah, very, so very important role. And he, this is a fascinating story that can be taken literally, doesn't have to be taken literally, so we'll, we'll read through it and then you can, you, you can uh, do it for yourself. Yeah. Decide for okay, yourself. so this is 22 bottom of the page. And the other woman said, not so, the living is my son and the dead is your son. And this one said, not so, the dead is your son and the living is my son. <laughs> they spoke before the king. So also there's a debate. What are they debating here? So there's a child, um, there were two mothers and two babies. One baby passed away, and both mothers are claiming that, that the other child is theirs. So they come to King Solomon, how do we resolve this? How do we resolve this conflict? It's a famous story in the Book of Malach, and this is, again, a very famous story associated with King Solomon. And the king says, this one says, this is my son that lives, and your son is dead. And the other says, not so, your son is dead, and my son is living. And the king said, fetch me a sword, and they brought him a sword before the king. And the altar over. Oh, all right. Well, there was more. There's more to that story. Um, living on the edge. Living on the edge. You'll have to read it to figure it out. Um, okay, spoiler alert, I'll tell you. So the one, um, 
mother can take the child, and King Solomon says that you're the real mother. So that's how he, that's, that ends up being the, the result of conflict. Um, but many, many, many conflicts have, and I'm not suggesting this as either a conflict or resolution, but it's really interesting to look to see how understanding the particular circumstance, and what's fascinating is that he understood behavioral psychology. So it wasn't just, it wasn't just a random, a random act, it wasn't just a random conflict, it was something he understood, he was emotionally charged, you're dealing with mothers, you're dealing with loss, you're dealing with a whole whole series of, of issues and a whole series of emotions and psychological needs that are going on simultaneously, and this is how he chose to address this issue. Um, and again, this is one, one of the famous stories that put him on the map to be qualified as one of the most famous and, wise, and wisest of all of, all of our leaders. Um, so as we know, in any type of conflict that we're in, and, you know, David alluded to before, it could be um, a moral conflict, or um, it could be a monetary conflict, or it could be that you know that something's going on, and how do you, who do you tell, who do you go to? So all of those sorts of things, and taking into account that it's not just the issue at hand, it's the players that are involved, it's the psychological needs, it's the emotional needs, it's the um, physical needs of whatever surrounds that particular circumstance, all of those things need to be taken into account before evaluating the right the, the right um, the right resolution or the right um, or the right set of guidelines to ultimately come up with a resolution. So, and we can see again there are hundreds and hundreds of examples of conflict resolution throughout Torah, um, throughout Halacha as well. And this is just one uh, one particular example. When you mentioned behavioral psychology. There can be a whole class and study on the amount of psychology within the biblical uh, characters, and how even this is the case, and King Shlomo was able to understand that who's going to be Who's going to jump at this opportunity when the soul comes and says, kill this baby? The mother that's emotionally connected. All of the avot and the mother have such tremendous psychological lessons that we can learn. And all of the psychology that many of you probably studied and we all studied in undergrad has its roots in so much of the Torah. Now let's turn over to number five. Uh, buzzword number five. Buzzword in marketing and business that's a big hot topic for all national and multinational global companies which is cultivating leaders. How do we find the next person to take over when the CEO is going to retire? Ultimately... So question. Yeah. Who here has a mentor? Wow. Awesome. Someone that you sought out or someone like through work? It's like kind of a, a framework that's already sought out. And, and everyone else. I didn't really want So mentorship is huge. Mentorship, sponsorship, having someone advocating for you, whether that's internally within your company, organization, or whatever your particular profession is, um, or somebody outside of um, outside of that, you know, that, again, that company, that, that particular uh, organization. So, so in the business world, you can take two approaches. You can say the vice president in 10 years is going to be taking over, and you can groom him, and you can make sure he has the appropriate skill sets and the contacts and the credibility to take over from the, from the CEO. Or you bring some from the outside, there's lots of case studies, and all the Harvard business releases, you look at Ford Motor Company, brought an outsider who failed, you look at Jack Welch, look at all the big names, and have them appropriately discussed and dealt with cultivating the next generation. Who's gonna take over when the president of the company retires, wants to step aside? How are we gonna make that transition? The ultimate piece in the Torah is the relationship between those. Could be, but there's not necessarily a transition of leadership there. Another transition we see of leadership of passing the mantle, one person to the next, 
this is Joshua. But ultimately, now we're going to read about it, as Rachel referenced earlier, this coming week in the Parsha, when Moshe Rabbeinu passes off his leadership to who? To his prime student, to Yahshua. Have a look at top of number five from Rabbi Bar. Right, so there are actually two sources that, um, that are referenced here. The first one um, is taken from St. Father. For Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant from his youth. So th- those words are really important in that particular order. So every, what's fascinating about Torah in general, or, or Sephardi Tanakh, the books of Tanakh, is that every word is intentional, purposeful, and has a specific purpose and, and intent and meaning. So here, the Joshua, the son of Nun, he was Moses' servant. So it says in Hebrew, Mesharet Moshe, which means he was, li- he was around him. He was apprenticing with him. So reference was in Exactly. It was, a, it was a shadow. And it says, from his youth. Right? So this is somebody that was exposed to a phenomenal leader from a very young age and literally was raised with the value system, with the understanding, with the knowledge, with the intellect, with the scholarship, with the leadership of this particular individual. So it's not just a fly-by, you know, two-year internship relationship. This is a true apprenticeship where he, where he grew up under the leadership and under the wing of Moshe. Not to say that that doesn't work. Right. Right. That bringing an outsider isn't going to work. So here you see someone from day in, day out from the youth, Followed Moshe, lived by him, watched how he adjudicated cases. People who bring all their tr- troubles and cases before Moshe, Yoshua, watched him day, watched him night, and sort of learned directly from him. That's the first source, Tamidbar. Have a look at the next source taken from Sefi Yoshua, ultimately when the, when the transition happens. Let's read it, read it together. Okay, Yoshua, chapter 1, sentence 1. And it was after the death of Moses, as the servant of the Lord, that the Lord said to Joshua, the son of whom Moses ministered, saying, Moses, my servant, has died, and now I arise, cross the Jordan, you and all the nations, to the land which I give the children of Israel. Every place in which the soles of your feet will tread, I have given to you, as I have spoken to Moses. So as the mantle and as the, you know, as the shift of power takes place, we see that even God is referencing, saying, you are, you are the A. You are the guy that's taking over, because you are the servant of Moshe. Moshe is my beloved servant. You are his beloved servant. And it's now your turn to take your place um, as a leader. And the thing I mentioned before, this is not a conclusive, one-dimensional back and understanding that this is all embedded within our history, within our text, um, and within, uh, within, within Jewish literature. One proven model, taking a leader, shadowing them, apprenticing with them, and transitioning and taking over for them with the full faith of the entire company, the entire people, and here in the entire nation. Um, number six, big buzzword in business. Anyone know what it means? Horizontal alignment. Nobody had to, oh, yes. I had to do like a month-long training on this thing. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, so maybe, correct. So not necessarily some that companies. Be yeah. Yeah. So some companies have a hierarchical structure. In like a typical corporate structure, you'll have, you know, a manager, director, VP, SVP, EVP. So there's, you can have a hierarchical structure, at least for sure, it's definitely in the corporate world. But you were saying, so you've done, have you done stuff on horizontal alignment? Or are you in HR? A little bit. I think getting everyone on the same page. Yeah, exactly. Getting everyone on the same page and working kind of cross-functionally. So you might have someone in marketing and in finance and operations and development, whatever, and all the different functions that they serve. And it's a way of bringing together the minds, bringing together the different skill sets. Because once you merge very often siloed functions of a business of a company, you all of a sudden come up with great ideas and all of a sudden have conflict resolution ideas and all different types of leaders emerge. So it's like a healthy exercise to take a company uh, through that process. Weird as it might sound, it's actually really rare to take the person that does accounting 
and does marketing, does PR, and is so focused on their own front of business, and that all I do is PR, all I do is publications, and all I do is social media, and I just I work in a legal department, I approve all the contracts, and bring everyone together around the table, either at a retreat, out of the office when the settings are a little bit different, or even at the office for a question and dialogue, and say, how can you and you help each other? How can by sharing can we collaborate? How can you lift the uh, energy and the focus and the ability of everybody to produce? That's basically what horizontal alignment does. Uh, beautiful example here. Say for Shemot. What's happening? What's the backstory? So the backstory is that the Mishkan, the tabernacle, is finally being uh, constructed, and there's a chief architect. His name was Bezalel, and he was commissioned um, to do uh, to he create this. He went obviously that's a person, <laughs> right? So he's going to be the chief architect. He's going to design this, and what happens? There's an announcement that's made that everybody needs to bring something to the Mishkan. What does that mean? Whether, and then we'll, we'll read the verse in a second and talk about it. The men came with the women, so everybody. Um, in fact, actually, sorry, I have to jump in. Yeah, right, that's, I have to jump in and say this. It says in the Hebrew, it's a horrible translation. The Hebrew is by Hanashim Al Hanashim, which means that the women came and the men followed. Which is that's just awesome. So the women came, the men followed. Every generous hearted person brought bracelets, earrings, rings, buckles, all kinds of golden objects, and every man, again, meaning every person, who waved a waving of gold to the Lord. And then it goes on, there's dozens of Sukim, dozens of verses that talk about um, linen and wool and fabrics and all sorts of things that were donated. So what does that mean? This construction was literally constructed from every single person's contribution. They are individual contributions. So if somebody came and gave a tiny piece of silver and somebody came and gave a massive rug and that stood over the arrow, stood over the ark, fine. But every single human being, every single person was represented within that structure. That's phenomenal. So when you think about it again, horizontal alignment is a relatively new, um, yeah, new term and new kind of initiative across different HR um, departments and different companies to bring everyone together. How do you rally the troops? Well, if I contributed to a building, I'm going to go to that building. But if Dan also contributed to that building, he's going to go. And if you contributed, you're going to go. So all of a sudden, this central place that's serving as a spiritual place for us to be able to connect with God is now housing our collective contributions. So you build community, you build camaraderie, you build communication, you build sharing, you build exchange of ideas, all by creating something to a central dialogue, and to a central, um, a central portal for giving. And you build tremendous equality, because there's no tier giving. It's not those that can give are giving more, and those that are not as able to give give less. Everyone is giving whatever they can, and everyone's contribution is enhancing the Mishkan together. Tremendous camaraderie, equality, and sort of lifts everyone together.
And it's not Tony, I can't remember his last name. Yeah, C. Let's just call him Tony Zappos. Yeah, Tony Zappos. Reinvented customer service for so many different reasons. You know that Zappos uh, will pay you $5,000 to leave after a two-week training course if you don't think you can keep up to the standards. Zappos has, everyone thinks that Zappos has, uh, you know, an online shoe store, and they have handbags, belts, and clothes, and everything, and they have next day delivery, and you can, you know, order, order shoes and return them a year, a year later. Their business model is all about customer service. He has a tremendous book called Delivering Happiness, which I recommend you to read. Just a brilliant book about what it means to be customer service oriented. They are amazing at what they do. Their longest phone call to customer service was 16 and a half hours. Oh. Where a woman was on the phone to a gentleman who was having a problem with his order, and through whatever he was having on his, on his life going on there, she helped him through some situation. She ordered dinner for him. I don't know if it's a reference to the book, but she was able to help him. But it's all about building loyalty, it's all about building that connection to the brand. Keys, what's the rule? If you have a good experience, you're going to tell how many people? Nine. Usually between nine and ten. Uh, a negative experience, you're going to tell a bunch of people as well. Double. So from that one experience, they built a loyal lifetime customer of Zappos. Another great example in the wonderful city that we live, not too far from here, is a guy, a good kid, called Danny Mayer. Unfortunately, none of the restaurants are kosher, but he's the owner and founder of, of a group called the uh, Union Square Hospitality Group. Union Square Restaurant, everyone's Shake Shack? Yeah. Okay, Shake Shack, we just benefit from the smell. Jump to find any guests he can get. Unbelievable. And he's not a young kid either. 
pushing in triple digits. And he lifted his eyes and saw, and behold, three men were standing beside him, and he saw, and he ran toward them from the entrance of the tent, and he prostrated himself to the ground. Right. Another key point. He doesn't run, he, well, he doesn't run where he runs. He jumps at the opportunity to greet us. And we can even forget the business world, but think about it from our own life. How many times we have a chance to greet a guest, to have someone staying with us. To get the extra sheet down, and the towel, and it's the bed that's underneath here, where you go, he runs the opportunity to welcome guests. It's amazing. Uh, right. It, it's actually, did anybody ever, um, did, anybody ever did anybody see the recent post um, or tweet from Taylor Swift to Apple? You guys read about this? Unbelievable, right? So we talked about customer service. Oh, well, so Taylor Swift tweeted at Apple. There are no trailers Taylor Swift. Yes. And Apple. Yes. Okay. So Taylor Swift tweeted at Apple because they said they weren't going to pay royalties. So she tweeted, she wrote them a letter and tweeted at them like, not cool, Apple. And Apple tweeted, no problem, it's going to be changed. Love Apple or whatever. Yeah. That's exactly. Um, and they changed the policy overnight. So and where they, they, they decommissioned getting the royal, paying royalties to the artists. So we talked about customer service being that type of responsive. And they're not even a customer service company. They're not, they don't pride themselves in that. They pride themselves on experience and design and integrity and, and technology and all that kind of stuff. But they're not a customer service company. We don't think, you know, think about hospitality as being customer service oriented. So here, through social media, through kind of an instantaneous response, they're able to exhibit customer service. So where did they learn that from? This idea of like, get up and respond. You see a need, you get up and you respond and you go. And that's something that we see, uh, that we see from our we can skip over the rest of the sources, but the emphasis is on the speed, of how they act so quickly, and what they do for the guests, and what they make. They make this beautiful meal. They don't just give them rice krispies and whatever they have in the fridge. They go and make the best of the products they have. So much we can learn from customer service. Are you kind of we give people rice krispies? Sometimes. There's no problem with rice krispies. Especially Especially if they're from Trader Joe's. We go down that box. So we're going to skip over, yeah, so just in the, um, um, the interest of time, we're going to skip over the next one. Um, it's about being solution-driven, and the example given, and feel free to, to read this and please make this with you. Um, the example given is Joseph, right? So Joseph hears this dream that Haro has. He interprets the dream, but he doesn't just do that. He interprets the dream and says, you definitely need someone to run this for you because um, you're going to be in an economic downturn and your GDP is going to drop. So you need somebody who's really smart, really charismatic, and a tremendous leader who can do this for you. And Carl's like, well, who, who, who am I going to take? And he's like, Joseph, you're the guy for the job. So he was very opportunistic in, in seeing that there was um, there was an opportunity for him to take um, to take on this leadership role. But it's being solution-driven. It's saying, hey, we've got a set of problems, and here are a set of solutions. So instead of just saying, here's a problem, what am I going to do? It's here's a problem, and here's a way that we can solve that problem. And not only that, but here's how we turn the problem into an opportunity. Here's how we take the challenge, and we can drive company growth, or we can drive productivity out of out of Egypt from um, from the particular challenge that they face. So again, looking back in, in history, um, that's one of the I think prime examples of thinking strategically um, and being solution driven, um, and and also opportunistic. Number nine. And they really rank these from 1 to 10, 10 to 1. Yes, they are not in any order. <laughs> Number 9, buzzword, key business focus in business schools. I just finished one of my last subjects was social media communication. Not just how to tweet, not how to use Facebook and how to use Instagram, but how to communicate your brand's message. And if you're selling apples, how to use all the social media channels in synergy together to sell apples. If you're an airline, 
tremendous amount of study, and lots of people making lots of money on this. What is creative communication? How can we say things, think differently, and position ourselves differently? Um, beautiful creative discussion and communication and unique song happens at the end of the Torah. In the last one of the five books in Sefer Devarim, in Parsha Hazil, we share beautiful language here, which is the first passage we have. Um, so here Moshe has been telling the Jewish people now for four books, right? So from Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Listen. For four books. He's been telling them, listen to God, don't worship idols, do what God says, develop a relationship with him, and you'll be close to him, and he'll do good for you, you do good for him, over and over and over and over and over again. And yet, the those four books in particular are riddled with examples of, like as in this week's Parsha, um, where the Jewish people had no water, what did they do? They complained. And they said, God's no good, and we should have died in Egypt, and why did God do this stuff? So over and over and over again. So what happens? Moses' final, final concluding words. He's about to die after the story, uh, after this particular portion of Hazi, and he dies in the very next, actually the very next day. Um, what does he do? He sings to them, right? So and he uses, you actually read through the shirai, you read through the song, he uses rhyme and rhythm and tempo and metaphors and analogies and alliteration and hyperbole. And he uses all literary styles that all of us remember from sixth grade, right? Hyperbole, right? And we're going to spell that also. Right? So we, we use all these literary techniques, these literary styles, and Moshe's like, I have to give you this message one last time, and I'm not going to have an opportunity to do it again. And clearly the way I've been doing it isn't very effective or it hasn't been working, and I need to give it to you in another way and in another form. So if you think about... Even the, the text of the Torah itself is written as a song. So the only text of the Torah is broken into two different columns, in one specific column, and the Torah is written. And it's beautiful, and it's eloquent, and it's musical. And it basically just says, you know what, it's not working, let me try something else. And he's able to think creatively, communicate his message, and if you look at the words of, of the Shira, they're pretty daunting. If you don't listen to God, he's going to expel you from the land. He's going to kill you, and you're going to die. But, but he takes it so eloquently <laughs> and says, I'm going to change the method of communication and hopefully you'll be able to digest information. So again, he uses all of these different literary techniques to accomplish the same delivery of the message, but the, uh, the vehicle to it was, was slightly altered. It was different. Um, and finally, okay, we'll wrap up with this. Long-term strategic vision, right? We've all heard this one, right? What's your long-term plan? Either personal plan, company plan. This is plan. not your grandmother or mother asking, like, what is your <laughs> right. long-term plan? That, yeah. yeah. Exactly. So um, and this is a very this is a very apropos um, example uh, brought from the Gemara uh, in during the time which we find ourselves in now. A week ago tonight, actually, um, or tomorrow, we ha we celebrated Rosh Chodesh Tammuz. So Rosh Chodesh Tammuz is the beginning of the month of a month that um, that is really about the fall of Jerusalem ultimately, and other calamities throughout Jewish history happened um, around the time of the three weeks. So the 17th of Tammuz is a fast day. Three weeks later is Tisha B'Av, the ninth day of Av, which is the day that the temple was destroyed. The 17th of Tammuz is a day that commemorates the, um, the breaking through the walls of Jerusalem. And it was all downhill from there. And there's a very famous story that takes place um, where Rabbi, um, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai actually was inside the walls of Jerusalem, faked his own death, and was brought out in a coffin. But it just sounds familiar to you. It's a fascinating story in the Gemara. Um, is brought out and has... Super like James Bond Mission Impossible. Very good, yes. Unbelievable. Yes, from the style. And he comes out to the Vespasian, and he, who's the leader at the time of the Roman Empire, and has a conversation with him. And in that conversation, he calls him emperor. And the Vespasian turns to him and says, um, you should die, I'm not the emperor. And just at that, at that moment, 
a horse and a, a leader come riding up, and they say, guess what, the emperor in Rome just died? You're the new emperor. So he looks at Rabiokhan and Mazzai, and he's like, whatever you want, right? He's like, you're, you're like my lucky genie. You're the one that said I was going to be emperor, and here I am, an emperor. And he says, whatever you want, I will grant you. And at face value, if you stopped reading the Gemara there, you'd say, hey, there's a siege on Jerusalem, and the temple is going to be destroyed. What do you think Rabiokhan and Mazzai should be asking for? He should ask for Jerusalem. He should ask for peace. He should ask that the Jewish people should be able to have sovereignty in the land of Israel, right? He could ask for anything. But what does he ask for? He said, I'm going now. So he said, meaning Vespasian said, I'm going now. I will send someone to take my place. You can't, however, make a request of me, and I will grant it. So whatever you want, it's on the house. And he said, give me Yavna, which was a, an institution, not a mental institution, a academic institution, and its wise men. So not just, not just the institution itself, but the teachers. The family gene of Rabban Gamliel. Rabban Gamliel was direct descendant of King David, so he was a person that held um, tremendous. He held the history of, of what the Jewish people stood for, the good times, um, and the, the draw all the way back to uh, to David Hamelah. And David Hamelah was also ultimately the Messiah, is going to come to Ben David. Um, so it's a sign of that of restoration and hope for the future. And physicians to heal Rebbezadik. Rebbezadik was also one of the great spiritual leaders at the time. He was very ill. Um, and he wanted a doctor for Rebbezadik. And many jump on Rebbezadik and Rebbezadik. How could you ask for this? What do you mean you want Yavna? You want this, this institution, this place of learning. Why do you want that? Why wouldn't you? If you had the opportunity to ask for Jerusalem, why wouldn't you ask for Jerusalem? So many of the commentators suggest, and the story continues through the Gemara, that he didn't want to lose his shop. That Vespasian could have easily said, I'm sorry, that's not happening, and then he would have lost any opportunity to ask for anything. So he had to play a little bit of negotiation, right? A little bit of leverage, right? So he had to really go through what the, what the different options were. So what does he choose? He chooses Yavna. Why does he choose Yavna? Because Yavna is ultimately the institution that Torah scholarship will be revived through that place because the wise people and the scholars will be learning Torah and disseminating Torah from that place. Ultimately, it is Yavna that leads to the continuity of the Jewish people once they're in exile. And once they were in exile, once they were dispersed, and Rabbi Yochanan Ben-Zakai had the foresight to say, even if I ask for Jerusalem today, ultimately we're going to be kicked out of the land because we don't have our acts together and we need to be revived as a people. How are we going to be revived? Through learning Torah and through scholarship and through inspiration and through collective, through collective sharing. So he says, give me Yavna. So we talk about long-term strategic vision. It would have been short-term, a short-term gain, gain and a long-term loss, ultimately, if he asked for Jerusalem at this time. So what does he do? He asks for something that will ensure, that will future-proof the Jewish people. And to this day, living in the diaspora, living in exile, we've been in exile for many thousands of years, the reason we have survived as a Jewish people is because of Yavna hands down. Because we've had a system and an infrastructure and a structure for continued Torah learning throughout the generations and throughout history, and it is this reason alone that the Jewish communities throughout Europe, throughout the Middle East, throughout Africa, throughout South America, have survived so many generations, um, is because of the institution of, of learning and the institution of, uh, of schools. So um, he had that long-term strategic vision to say, it's not about what's going to help us today, it's about, what's, it's about what's going to future-proof us and be able to keep us and retain the integrity of the Jewish people as a nation. I would just add one piece that he didn't ask the other. Look at the two latter pieces that he asked for. The family chain and the physicians are upset. What does the family chain represent? As Richard mentioned, Rabbi Jalil wasn't just an esteemed rabbi and leader. He was a link to the chain to do He was able to look at something and link it back to our history because ultimately 
That's who we are. We're people of our history. We're people where everything that we do, everything that we continue to do, has its origins where? All the way back to thousands of years. So you're looking forward and also looking backward, tremendous visionary and, and strategist to be able to make these requests, and of course also the physician for Rapsala. So how does this all come together? Um, Jack Walsh, Mark Cuban, you may have never heard of them, you may have heard of them. Why Shark Tank? It's the best show. Yeah, the best. Well, uh, I guess product placement tonight went to Shark Tank and the <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> but Google. Business has a lot of buzzwords, and business is always evolving. There's always different strategies. Disruptive technology is a new hot volatility in business. But what we wanted to do tonight was just to highlight that although Torah was given, and my time Torah happened 3,327 years ago, on some hub, on some mountain, um, called Zion, uh, that the lessons of the Torah and the things that we interact with in our daily life, in whatever profession each of you uh, are blessed to work in, that there are many different links to everything that has origins in the Torah. And the Torah is a living and breathing document and a way of life that's not just uh, given to us, but it's a blueprint to everything that exists and just tries to re-think re and re-jigger or and orient ourselves differently to see how the Torah is surrounded us and how we're surrounded by the Torah. And it creates also a true platform for synthesis, that we all have professions and we can all lead meaningful Jewish lives at the same exact time, simultaneously, each feeding each other, and they're not mutually exclusive. So it's a way that it binds these two worlds. And again, we're using business as the example. It can be medicine, it can be law, it can be business per se. But the um, the the rules that we play by for life growth, because again, all of these things can come back to also personal introspection, conflict resolution, dealing with your own leadership and your own. Um, and your own um, sets of challenges and opportunities and our own SWOT analysis, identifying our blind spots. So doing kind of our own SWOT analysis, right, straight through these opportunities, right? Okay. So um, when we do our own analysis. Undergrad. Undergrad, right. right. <laughs> Undergrad marketing. Um, so um, and we have those opportunities to do it on a very personal level, on a national level, and then also being gleaning from the business world in to make our, to enrich our Jewish experience and our Jewish identity and taking up our Jewish identity and the history that we have and the incredible foundation that we stand on and using that to enhance whatever our professional life um, is as well. Again, whether it's in the Jewish community, outside of the Jewish community, in whatever profession it is, but that there's a tremendous amount of synthesis um, and the two can really live co and coincide side by side. One caveat for everybody, please don't go to work tomorrow telling your uh, <laughs> colleagues or your supervisors and showing you know, leadership, you know, Moses was a guy, sure. and certainly don't use the case of the babies and um, yeah. <laughs> that just for us. Hopefully, everybody gets something for me to reach out to you about any questions. Thank you so much for having.